Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You know, I have evicted, I have evicted a lot of people. I've also been evicted. I've had to relocate so many times. I can't, I'm like, I can't afford this rent anymore. So what did I do? I worked harder to get more money so I could go move back into that neighborhood because I liked my neighborhood. You wanted the hard way? Well, we'll see. I'm not a stupid. I don't speak English well, but I could call the police and tell them, hey, you know, you should come here. Come and see what the new owner of this building is doing to all the tenants here. Well, I can consider myself as homeless because I don't have my own home anymore. I may stay a week or so here and a week or so there, you know. I have no permanent place to live. You know, when someone gets displaced from their home, they're just not losing their home. They're losing their community. They're losing their social network. And, And so we're disrupting and tearing apart neighborhoods and communities, which are the backbone uh, of the city of Los Angeles. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. So I'm standing outside this apartment building in Los Angeles. It's just south of the Hollywood Freeway and north of LA's MacArthur Park. Uh, It was built in the 1920s, and it's like really thousands of other buildings from that era in Los Angeles. Um, The exterior walls are faded yellow stucco. I mean, really, really faded. Uh, There are tiles above the door and arch windows. They give it small splashes of Spanish-style charm. Um, Inside, the hallway's dimly lit and there's a worn wooden staircase leading up to the second floor. It's all really kind of normal looking, but a bitter fight has broken out in this apartment building between the new owner and its tenants. And that's where our story starts. I'm Saul Gonzalez, and this is There Goes the Neighborhood L.A. In this episode, we're going to zoom into the story of one apartment building in L.A.'s Rampart Village neighborhood. The new owner is trying to push out the tenants who live in this building's eight one-bedroom units, like this woman, Maria Santa Cruz. We are a human being, and we're living here for many years. So I'm not going to make it easy for him. He doesn't have the right to do what he's doing. It's 8 a.m., and a handful of people are standing around in front of the two-story apartment building. On the stoop, Maria's husband, Uber Santa Cruz, puts a pink box down on top of a chair. Donuts. (laughs) Coffee's upstairs. Yeah. He shifts from one foot to the other as he talks. You know, I, I, I mean, ah. I'm expecting that guy like any time, but generally speaking, I think we're all up on, you know, really nervous. Uh, I haven't slept uh, well at all, just thinking about what may transpire. Uber lives in this building with his family, and this is the day, this is the morning, the building's new owner wants some tenants to move out. He says it's just temporary while he renovates their apartments, but the tenants don't trust him. They're afraid if they leave, they'll never come back. I'm watching what's happening with KCRW reporter Anna Scott. So, big orange moving truck pulled up in front of the building. There's three movers on the stoop. But nobody's coming out with boxes. The movers go back to the truck and just sit there. And lots of people are on their cell phones or just milling about waiting for something to happen, whatever that something is. 
We have a truck already, so we can move out. Then the landlord arrives. We're moving out two tenants. We're legally allowed to. That's David Bramante. He's 35 years old and dressed in black jeans and a black puffy jacket. We've done everything that we were supposed to, and then we notified the tenants that today uh, units number one and units number two would be moved out. Okay, so no one's moving out yet, so what do you do? I haven't talked to the tenants yet, but yeah, if that's the position, we'll find out pretty soon. This kind of struggle is now common in LA. On one side are people with money, developers and investors who've come to neighborhoods they used to ignore, seeking to make more money by buying up properties. On the other side are the people who live in those neighborhoods, folks who are terrified that outsiders coming in could mean eviction, displacement, and maybe even homelessness. Or they might be forced to leave Los Angeles altogether. Now, about this particular apartment building, Anna knows a lot about it and its new owner. Yeah, so let me tell you about that owner. David Bramante bought the building in the spring of 2016. And he's an unusual guy. A lot of real estate investors don't want to be interviewed about their work, especially if it involves gentrification. But David is very open. When I buy a property, I do ask everybody if they want to leave or if I could pay them to leave. And, you know, so I apply a little pressure, like, hey, I'd like you to leave if, you know, if you're open to that. And David is also very visible. For months, he's had this huge billboard of a smiling face on the corner of Echo Park and Sunset. Yeah, I live right by there, and he has bus benches, too. David talks a lot about his success as a real estate agent. I have sold more properties in Echo Park than anyone else. And on Echo Park Avenue, I've just crushed it. I have sold so many apartment buildings. With real estate investment, David has done fewer deals. He's a small player by L.A. standards. For the building in Rampart Village, David says he got 14 investors to go in on it. Together, they paid $1.2 million. I had friends, family, some colleagues who I knew were looking to buy property. And so then I gave them a call and I said, hey, you know, there's this building. It's basically South Silver Lake. It's close to downtown. It's got amazing views. I think it has a lot of potential. And uh, I'd like to take a crack at it. Wait a second. He said South Silver Lake. That's not a thing. That's not a place in L.A. <laughs> I, well, that's real estate speak. Now, the two neighborhoods are close, as you know, Anna. They're really close, right next door to each other. But Rampart and Silver Lake exist in two, they're, they're in two worlds, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Silver Lake is like lots of juice bars and $5 vegan donuts. And Rampart is like chili hamburgers at the original Tommy's, street vendors selling grilled corn and tacos al pastor. Silver Lake is really hip gay bars. Rampart is evangelical storefront churches. If Silver Lake was a movie, it would be 500 Days of Summer. If Rampart was a movie, it would be Rampart, a film about a dirty cop on the streets of L.A. Woody Harrelson, by the way, is the dirty cop. I don't intend to retire. You know, Rampart has become a shitstorm of such epic proportions, legally and financially. You know, which which makes sense because the neighborhood is well known for this police corruption scandal that happened about 20 years back. And before that, in the 1980s, immigrants that were fleeing civil wars in Central America settled in Rampart. Many of their kids got involved with street gangs in the neighborhood. Today, crime in Rampart Village is about average for the city of L.A. Silver Lake, meanwhile, is synonymous in L.A. with soaring housing costs. Fifteen years ago, my husband rented a studio apartment there for $480 a month. Now that same apartment costs about $1,700, more than triple. 
So it makes sense that a guy like David would see opportunity in Rampart, the next neighborhood over from Silver Lake, where rents are still pretty low. And let's not understate this. The rents in this building are from another era. Yeah, I asked David about that. And with the rents in that building, I know they're very low. How far below market rate for that area is that? You know, some people are paying a couple hundred dollars. I think the most is maybe eight or nine hundred dollars. And so depending on how well the units would be renovated and if the tenants wanted to move out, what would market rate be? It could maybe be over two thousand dollars. There are other buildings like this around L.A., rent-controlled places and not-so-trendy areas where people have lived in the same apartments for decades. But now those low rents are a lure to investors who see profit in undervalued properties. And really, right, the only way that the new landlord can get the rent up to market rate is to basically get everyone out, right? Yeah, and David has a lot of incentive to do that. He's taken a real gamble here. Remember, the building cost $1.2 million, and David bought it with 14 investors. That's a lot of people for a deal like this, and they're expecting some kind of return. I can't get too specific because that's confidential, but I can tell you there are 14 people involved, and that's very complicated. You know, There's more investors that have money on the line than there are tenants that have you know homes in the building, and I'm in the middle of that. David also took out a short-term loan for $800,000, which he has to pay back or refinance within two years. He's got to feel stressed, right? He's already a year into the loan. Yeah, he needs to squeeze more money out of this building ASAP. But it's really hard to evict rent-controlled tenants in L.A. You heard David say earlier when he buys a building, he offers everybody money to leave voluntarily. That's a pretty common move for landlords who want to get rid of rent-controlled tenants. It's called cash for keys. David's done this before, and it worked for him, so that was his first move here. I never told them they have to leave, but I did tell them that I would like them to leave. Except the tenants said no. They've been through this before, too. The last owner was also an investor, and things with him got really ugly. So when David took over, the tenants were prepared for a fight. And really, who can blame them, right? They know how little they're paying compared to a lot of people in Los Angeles. And they know the $20,000 they'd get from a Cash for Keys deal is less than a year of rent on an average one-bedroom L.A. apartment. I talked about this with a lawyer named Elena Pop. She runs a nonprofit called the Eviction Defense Network. It represents tenants in eviction court. She says a few years ago, most of her cases settled. Her clients would accept some sort of payout from their landlords and they'd move. But today... I would say that 90% of the cases are not settling because the market skyrocketed, rents are through the ceiling, rent control tenants are substantially below market, and there's no place else for them to go in their neighborhoods or in the city. And when folks realize that, they get much more ardent about fighting to save their homes. That definitely describes residents in this building. Most of them are Central American immigrants, and they're very anxious about losing these apartments. Producer Miguel Contreras talked to Maria Santa Cruz, who you heard earlier. So I asked Maria what this experience was like. She says she's lived here all her life, and adapting somewhere else would be hard for her family. And she's not the only one. Dina Tatuan, who lives downstairs, said she's sick with stress. The guy who's leading this fight to stay in the building is Maria's husband, Uver Santa Cruz. You heard him earlier, too, with the donuts. 
Every unit has kind of a special story. Most of us have grown up and made families here. He's 53 years old, born in Guatemala and raised in Los Angeles. He lives here in this spacious but cluttered one-bedroom with Maria and their two sons. Right now, Uber's sitting at his kitchen table, listing his neighbors and how long they've lived here. Humberto has been here for like 48 years. Maria's mom, she's been here for 37. Mm-hmm. Her mom? Uh-huh. Your mom and your sister live in the building? Yeah. yeah. Me, myself, are 32 and... Right next door. Uber works as a union electrician, but it's stop and go, partly because of an arm injury he had surgery for last year. He also supports his four-person household. For this one bedroom, they pay a little less than $500 a month. And a market rate for a 1,000-square-foot apartment starts at 2200 and you can probably go up higher than that, maybe even up to like $4,000. Working folk, common folk, can't do that. His numbers are pretty close. The average one-bedroom in L.A. costs about 2000 a month, four times Uber's rent. For Uber, leaving this apartment would probably mean leaving Los Angeles. There's no way we could find even a room, even a single room. You can't even find a single room. Uh, I mean, if, if I were to have steady income throughout the year, I would probably make 60000 about a year. You know, but it's never that much. His 11-year-old son, Moises, worries about having to leave his school and about his parents. They get really stressed out, and I, like, feel like something bad might happen. I hope that everything goes back to how it used to be, and, like, we could grow our guava tree in the back. He cut that down. It was, like, nice fruits in the summer. So I hope we we could just be our normal selves. You know, we take it for granted, but, you you know, I can look at the city, the whole city, from from my window, and it's really beautiful. That's removing... A great chunk of me, if you take me from here. This is, it's my city. Coming up, a bad situation gets worse between Uber and David. He said to me, you know, it's really plain. He said, you've been here too long. It's time to leave. Now, to understand the potential the new owner sees in this nearly 90-year-old Rampart apartment building, you just have to cross the street. There's a brand new apartment building here, three stories. It looks kind of like a boutique hotel with a bright green and gray facade and balconies. This building is called Home at Temple, H-O-M, no E. I also love the fact that it has a probiotic juice bar on the corner of the apartment complex. We got a tour from the building manager, Sabrina Fuentes. The property has landscaped courtyards with fire pits, a game room with a pool table, and Sabrina said they were working on getting pet groomers. So this is one of the apartments that I have available. Two bed, two bath. It's about 1,200 square feet. Two walk-in closets in this floor plan. You get a washer dryer, all the appliances, so stainless steel, microwave, dishwasher, stove, refrigerator. Yeah, if you pop outside, too, you can actually see the downtown skyline where they're starting to build like, all the larger. Stepping out onto the balcony, you look straight down at Uber's building. You could throw a, a ball and hit it almost. And how much is this apartment? This one's running for thirty-one fifty. 
28-year-old Eric Matheson lives in another two-bedroom, two-bath in this building. He works as a headhunter in the finance industry. He moved in because he wanted to live in a hip, vibrant neighborhood. They had actually advertised it as Silver Lake, and so we didn't officially know that this wasn't part of Silver Lake. (laughs) When did you figure that out? Actually, when I first realized it was opening up Snapchat, the day we moved in, we were doing like a snap of each other, and I was doing a geotag, and Silver Lake was not an option. It was Rampart Village, it was West Lake, and that's when I realized that we were not in Silver Lake. <laughs> so Eric likes the neighborhood anyway. It's close enough to Silver Lake. He shares his apartment with a roommate, his old friend Sarah. They pay about $3,300 a month. That's six times Uber's rent. And Eric is aware that he's part of neighborhood change. We definitely think about it. You know, one morning we woke up to someone had graffitied across the sidewalk in front of our building. F word, gentrification. There's times where we feel guilty or maybe complicit. Now we're starting to see that we're part of a larger movement. Back across the street, Uver and David are on a collision course. Uver persuaded the tenants in all eight units not to take David's buyout. I'm a tenants union activist. Uh, you know, I'm an organizer. I am a member of a neighborhood council. Where I have tenants that would love to move out. They say, I would, I would do it, but Uver won't let me. It's political. Many of the tenants don't even like each other in the building. So to think that this is like a beautifully functioning building with like super tight-knit relationships that if you move these people even temporarily, they would just like perish is not the reality. The guy just flat out one day asked me, man, how much is it going to take? What do you want? 40, 50, 60 grand? You want $100,000 over? And I finally just blew my top and I said, man, you know, it's not about your money. And he said to me, you know, it's really plain. He said, you've been here too long. It's time to leave. Now, Uber is not the only person at odds with David. David's bus benches, billboard, and Instagram make him a high-profile face of gentrification. On social media, he's been called an evil gentrifier, a parasite, total scum, and a classist, racist, capitalist piece of trash. But David says he also gets hated on because of assumptions people make about his personal background. I'm immediately judged like you're white, so obviously you inherited money from family, and so now that's why you can buy real estate. And it's like, I just, like, I can't go anywhere with that conversation because it's a no-win conversation. Gentrification is complicated. The winners and losers aren't always cut and dried, and sometimes they trade places. David says when he was 17 years old, his family got evicted from their apartment in Hollywood. My brother and I would take the bus from our high school. And then one day we came home and my mom was in our car and she had our dog and she had a bunch of things. And I got out of the bus with my brother and she had just like looked so sheepish. And I thought, oh, we don't. Sorry. Uh, just never... Talk about this stuff. So I just knew we ended up living with her boyfriend. And after that, I went to art school and I was just on my own. And, you know, for a while, I was just like living out of my car. And then David says he made a plan. And then I started going to these real estate seminars and just trying to figure out, like, how can I 
not have that happen again. So that was kind of like how it all, how I got started in the business. Almost 20 years later, business has been good for him. After his tenants said no to cash for keys, David started posting eviction notices using technicalities that the law allows. We have pursued evictions on things that are really negatively impacting the building, you know? So there's some like big wild dogs that are not supposed to be there per leases. The tenants lawyered up. They filed their own lawsuit against David, accusing him of violating the city's rent stabilization law and attempting illegal evictions, among other things. As part of the complaint, lawyers argued that David can't evict Uber, partly because Uber is disabled from his arm injury. At one point in all this, David hired a private investigator to follow Uber around and see if the injury is real. Maybe this is like a hoax, because I've seen other tenants in the past, you know, they're like fudging stuff for payment. And so we had him followed for a couple days. And uh, as soon as he's away from the building, there's no arm brace. Uber says his injury only acts up periodically, and that David has used surveillance cameras to intimidate tenants. Those are now in order. The first uh, installation was like, right, camera pointing at your door. David tried one more way to make good on his investment. Landlords in L.A. can temporarily move rent-controlled tenants out of buildings to do serious renovations. David said upgrading the property would make it more valuable and help him refinance his loan. Tenants and their lawyers say this is a loophole landlords around the city use to get rid of rent-controlled tenants. That once the tenants are out, owners can do all sorts of things to keep them out, like delaying the renovations so they give up and find new places to live. So we're back where we started, moving out day. People in two units are supposed to go to their temporary apartments this morning. Uber and Maria are dressed in the red T-shirts of the L.A. Tenants Union, ready for battle. And they're joined by their allies, renters' rights activists and lawyers. Fire department paramedics come twice when a woman thinks she's having a medical emergency because of the stress. Oh, wow. Okay. Second truck. Multiple fights break out, both inside and outside the building. And at one point, Uber's older son, Eddie, confronts David. Their faces are only inches apart. I don't want to speak. I want to speak. No, no. You guys are Okay, well, you're not involved, really. Yes, I am. How am I not, sir? I sleep in the fucking same bed as they do, in the same house. How am I not involved? Explain. Your parents are. So what? Okay. That's not the point of what today is. Today is units number one, and units two are supposed no, 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 to move. Leaving. I'm not letting them leave, all right? Got you're not letting them? Santa Cruz, I'm not letting them leave. Oh. Part of this human being, bro, I swear to God, no type of human... We're doing everything by the law. Uber, you know that. You should talk to your you son about it. You where we end up in one year, all right? You give no fucks about us. That's the truth about the situation. It's no better than that. This is what happens when you have no humanity, but he's telling you. Uber, I have been talking to you and your attorneys for over a year. If it's not humane to have a conversation for a year and a half, then I don't know what is. There was also a fight between David and Maria. You know you're going to lose. I didn't want to evict you. I put $20,000 in an escrow account for you guys to take and move. Mm-hmm. But again, you guys want to fight. But that's that, not fair to them. But you know what? Who said that I'm going to lose? And off to the side, watching the whole scene play out, is Humberto Ramirez Jr. He lives in apartment two with his dad. Eventually... I realistically eventually think, you know, he'll win because he has more lawyers, more money to spend on the lawyers and go through more more stuff. So eventually he will win, but we'll stay here as long as we can. Maybe David will win, but maybe not. 
I caught up with renter rights attorney Elena Pomp. She says landlords might have the money for lawyers, but tenants in the city have the power of numbers. But the truth is that if every single tenant in the city resisted every single rent increase, and if every single tenant in the city refused to move when the landlord tried to push them out, landlords would not be able to evict people because they have to go through the court system and the court system can't support every single tenant in the city resisting. That's why resistance works, but everyone has to do it. In a sense, what you're saying is jam the gears. Jam the gears. Months later, most of the tenants in Uber's building are still there. David ended up dropping most of his eviction cases, including the one against Uber. Just one eviction is still pending. David also refinanced his loan for another couple of years, and he says he plans to hold on to the property. So far, one apartment has been vacated. Right now, it's advertised on Airbnb for $60 a night. Under neighborhood features, David lists hipsters, bohemian, and cool modern architecture. The lawsuit that the tenants filed against David is still dragging through court. The next meeting in the case is scheduled for November. The questions we raise in this series, is there a place for me in Los Angeles? What kind of city is this going to be in the future? Are obviously not abstractions for Uber and the other tenants. Eviction is frightening, and it's very real to lots of people in Los Angeles. Here's just one. Actually, like, saying it out loud right now is kind of, uh, it's making me a little, <laughs> a little panicky. That's our producer, Miguel Contreras, who you heard interviewing tenants in this episode. He's facing eviction, too. I love my apartment. I don't know if I'll ever live in a place as, you know, cool and as nice as that. And um, to have that looming, you know, over your head and not just you, you know, my roommate and my neighbors who I've had this relationship with for these all these years. Like, um, it's kind of scary. It's sad. And, you know, aside from, you know, the frustration and sort of the, the helplessness about not really being able to do anything about it. We know there are plenty of you in this situation as well. Here's Rita Kasich from LA's Highland Park neighborhood. She was forced out of her rental this summer. You know, when we move, we're moving away from our, all of our friends. We're moving further from our jobs. We're moving further from the families and the businesses that we've gotten to know over the years. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really heartbreaking. If you've got an opinion or an experience you want to share, go to kcrw.com slash there goes the neighborhood to join the discussion on our Facebook group. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts and please tell your friends to listen too. Next time on There Goes the Neighborhood. There also is an anxiety about kind of a disappearance of black folks in the city and what does that mean and what does that mean for, for equity and, um, and what does that mean culturally. There Goes the Neighborhood's reporter is Anna Scott. Our producer is Miguel Contreras. Celeste Wesson is our editor. Sonia Geis is our managing editor. Ray Guarna and J.C. Swatik are our recording engineers. At WNYC Studios, our producer is Paige Cowett. Our executive producer is Karen Frillman. And Casey Means is our technical director. Our composer is Hannes Brown, with additional music by Terrence Blanchard. I'm Saul Gonzalez. This series is supported by the Conrad N. Hilton Foundation. Thanks for listening.